Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. In the high impact space, you kind of want anything that has major beneficial impact on society to get funded. You don't want there to be too many deals chasing too little money. So I think there still needs to be more money coming into the sector, and I think that's starting to happen. We want to try to help people who, with our assistance, are going to be able to raise money. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are the highest return organizations, although obviously a high return organization is more likely to find capital available than an organization that looks unlikely to deliver a high return. I'm very pleased today to introduce Rod Schwartz. Rod's founder of Clearly So Business Angel Network, which works with high-impact businesses, charities and funds in the UK to raise capital and introduces them to institutional and individual investors. So far, it's raised more than £108 million impact investment. It also advises business on growth, strategy and fundraising to scale their impact. Thank you very much, Rod, for taking the time today and welcome to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Pleasure. Can you tell me what you do, Rod? I have the privilege of running a business called Clearly So, and Clearly So is Europe's largest impact investment bank. Uh, So what does that mean? Well, I guess everybody knows what an investment bank is, or at least people think they do. In that sense, we're an FCA licensed entity operating in the UK, uh, doing uh, corporate finance and capital raising work uh, for clients. What makes us unique, and the reason we call ourselves an impact investment bank, is that every single one of our clients generates a significant amount of social or ethical or environmental impact. So what do we actually do? People come to us and they're looking for us to raise money, anywhere from a quarter of a million pounds to 40 or 50 million pounds. And we work with them, uh, develop their business plans, get involved in deal structuring, um, et cetera, et cetera. And we then introduce them and work with them to raise capital from either institutional investors all across Europe, so large financial institutions and foundations, or on the other hand, uh, a group of high net worth individual investors. And we have a network in the UK of about six, seven hundred of those uh, high net worth individuals. And across Europe, we have a network of 852 institutional investors which, as I said, could be foundations, banks, insurance companies, pension funds, even government departments uh, that are all looking to invest in impact investment deals. That's great. And what about you, Rod? How did you get involved and what's your background? My background is all finance. So I started as an equity research analyst. Uh, I eventually went into the senior management Uh, of the equity business here in London for Lehman Brothers, uh, an investment bank that used to exist. Um, So that would mean I was involved in the sales trading, research, and capital raising uh, of large clients and uh, intermediating from institutional investors uh, across Europe. So that was a large part of my background. Then I did corporate finance for uh, a firm which is now BMP Paribas, and I did that until the uh, late 90s. Uh, then left and started my own venture capital firm in 1997, uh, which I ran for 10 years. But in the course of that period of time, 
I decided I wanted to do something that generated social impact. Uh, we tried to raise a fund once or twice and we're not successful. And in the end decided instead to operate, as I said, as an impact investment bank instead of as a fund investor. So my background is financial, uh, as a venture capitalist, as an investment banker, uh, and as an analyst and manager of an equities business. Right. Very relevant background and very useful. Impact investment is very popular these days. There's a lot of talk and a lot of momentum, it seems, in impact investment. And clearly, you've been at it for some years before it's reached this popularity. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the climate at the moment, how it's evolving? Well, I think there are two things or three things maybe that are true. One is it's still very small. So if you were to look at impact investing around the world and people do a range of different estimates. Uh, I think what you'd see is uh, there is about a hundred billion U.S. dollars, which people believe is um, dedicated to impact investment. I personally think that that estimate's a bit low, but whether it's a hundred billion dollars or two hundred billion dollars, that's actually, although it sounds like a lot of money. It's a very small amount of money when you compare it to the $150 trillion that is professionally managed. So the first thing I would say is that it is a small sector. Uh, the second thing I would say is that it's growing really, really fast. So I think people generally be, believe that impact investing is growing anywhere from 10% to 40%, four zero per annum. And there isn't anything in the financial sector that is growing at that pace. And it reflects the fact that investors all over the world, whether they be institutions or high net worth investors, are simply starting to value impact. And they're looking at impact almost as a third dimension to investing. And when I say a third dimension, to me, the first dimension is return. The second dimension is risk. And now the third dimension is what is the impact of what it is I'm investing in. And institutions and individuals are starting to really think about that, either from a risk mitigation standpoint, so they don't want to invest in things that do harm and might get taxed, uh, or because they think there's some upside there. So, um, yeah, so it's small, it's growing very fast. And the third thing I would say is that it's being well supported by governments around the world. Uh, and the reason governments, particularly in the Western world, uh, are supporting impact investment is because without exception, they've all run out of money uh, or are running out of money. And uh, they can't increase taxes or politically, they don't think they can increase taxes. And the result is they're trying to look at other ways to fund public services or the social welfare system, and they are identifying the capital markets as a way of doing that. And impact investment is kind of about the mechanism for how you take uh, private capital from individuals or from institutions and put it to work in enterprises that deliver both returns and significant social, ethical, and environmental impact. What about in the UK? Rod, how would you characterize the funding landscape for social innovation in the UK? I would say it's very active in the UK. Uh, many, many people think that the UK market is the most developed in the world. You can probably tell by my accent that uh, I didn't grow up here. But uh, despite that, I would actually concur with that. 
So even my colleagues uh, from the United States would agree that in terms of the pace of innovation, there isn't anywhere in the world where as much is happening as is happening in the UK. And I think that's largely due to the fact that government, the financial sector, the corporate sector, and what in the UK has been described as the third sector are really working actively together to try to bring this about. And the, the range of government incentives or initiatives or programs or legislative changes or regulatory adjustments that have uh, been undertaken in the UK is just gobsmacking. Uh, and uh, it is trying to create a very different market-based approach to solving some of these uh, social problems. You could say that has an ideological component, but interestingly enough, many of these initiatives were started under the Labour government, continued under the Lib Dem conservative coalition government, and are now being continued under this government. So I would say it, it has no, uh, multi-partisan support, um, that it isn't viewed as being a left or right-wing thing, uh, but it's been very uh, actively supported uh, by politicians uh, in the UK, and academia has gotten very involved. So all the different facets of society, the media, uh, have kind of participated in this revolution, and it's that interaction which has made social innovation in the UK take off as it has. Are there one or two government initiatives that you'd single out being particularly effective? I think the most galvanizing has been the creation of big society capital, uh, which was actually an idea that also goes back to the Labour government. It was uh, uh, conceived by, I believe, Gordon Brown, uh, who it was suggested uh, was... Uh, uh, behind this idea to create what they used to call a social investment wholesale bank. Um, the idea was that the unclaimed assets, particularly dormant bank account deposits, sitting in large financial institutions should, after a certain amount of time, which turns out to be 15 years, taken away from the banks and put into a fund where the money could could be paid back. So if after 15 years, somebody says, hey, wait a minute, that's my money, you could get that money back. But the, the I guess the assumption is the money uh, will never be asked for. People have forgotten about it. And that was a pot initially of about 400 million pounds, uh, which together with 200 million in loan capital from large UK banks created this vehicle, which the Tories then rebranded, unsurprisingly, as big society capital, uh, and got it going. And they got it going in 2012. And its sole, not its sole purpose, but its main purpose is to create a world-leading impact investment market in the UK. And actually, it's kind of done that. And, it, um, and I think uh, that's been very galvanizing because it's quite a lot of money it has a very clear purpose, and it's also become the hub around which a lot of initiatives also take place.
Right, that's very interesting. Now, I asked about returns, and as you pointed out, it's a difficult question to answer, and it's horses for courses and different people with different expectations and requirements and so forth. Now, I talked to somebody in the solar space who raised venture capital for his, basically, a social business, but obviously with great growth potential. He really has, you know, great aspirations to ramp up the business and felt that venture capital would be an ideal partner for that. The majority of social entrepreneurs I speak to, though, find themselves in a trickier position. And it's not clear that these market growth potential is, is nothing like that. And I'm just wondering when it comes to, you know, social entrepreneurs who are in the space of not quite getting market returns or, you know, substantially below market returns, but high impact what does that marketplace look like? Again and again, entrepreneurs say to me, it's very difficult to raise money. They find it very challenging. They find it quite depressing. And then others say they, you know, they, they have had great success. I'm just wondering in that particular area, what's your sense? I would say a couple things about that. I think that it is true that many high impact entrepreneurs, and we don't use the word social entrepreneurs here at Clearly So for reasons I'll happily discuss if you're interested. But for many of these, high-impact entrepreneurs, uh, we find that there is a frustration uh, with their ability to access capital. I th think that there are a number of factors at work. So I think the first factor is, in my opinion, there is and are more opportunities coming down the pipe than there is capital to invest in them. So obviously, in a circumstance like that, uh, you're going to find frustration. Um, this is not a universally held view. Some people think there are not enough good deals out there. Uh, other people think there's not enough money. I fall into that latter camp. And that could be because we probably have more deal flow than any other firms. So we don't feel a lack of deal flow. We feel very much uh, that the capital levels available are behind in, uh, in amount terms. And also, if you think about it, in the traditional world, you really want there to be more deals and capital because that creates a sort of uh, market where the VCs get really good returns. And that kind of works because VC is a, a high-risk asset. But in the, in, the, in the high impact space, you kind of want anything that has a major beneficial impact on society to get funded. You don't want there to be <laughs> too many deals chasing uh, too little money. So I think there still needs to be more money coming into the sector. And I think that's starting to happen as institutional investors get more engaged. But I do think there's a third thing that is operating, which is that there are some organizations who are very high impact, but because of the, the nature of where they operate, they can never be high return. They can never even be moderate return. They're going to be low return organizations that generate a lot of impact. And there is some capital available for such organizations, but never as much as is demanded. And that will only work if either foundations come in and subsidize that because they value the impact. So what they might do is accept a low return uh, and bring in other capital, which will, for the same sort of transaction, get a higher return. Uh, we talk about blended capital transactions in that regard. Uh, so I think, or the government has to subsidize that because there's just a mismatch between what the 
project is able to pay and what the investors feel they need for the risk-adjusted returns of those projects. So without a subsidy from foundations or from the government, there will just be frustration. And I think there's one final factor here, and that is political. So I think that with the massive amount of budget cuts that have been coming down the pipe, uh, I think a, a tremendous need for impact investment has been created. But the gap between um, the need, which has been created by those budget cuts, and the available capital is just too great. So I think um, people want to hope that impact investment can plug that gap. And in time, impact investment can plug that gap. But the severity and suddenness of the budget cuts, we measured against the limited amounts of impact capital available, has meant that people are just frustrated and they feel like they've been sold something. But I think politicians have talked up impact investment as a way to sort of balance the sound bites, but the sizes are just not in balance. You know, you have tens of billions of cuts on the one hand and a few hundred million of capital available on the other hand. That's a recipe for frustration. It's an interesting uh, multidimensional way of looking at it. I mean, in your experience for the deals that you've done or looking at your investors, you know, what proportion would be in this lower return area? Oh, that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, I think that if you look at the 90 deals we've done, let's say, I would imagine that uh, something like a third of them would be from the start deals that are not like to generate market returns. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't been able to secure investment. In fact, we have, in each of those cases, secured investment. But we know right from the outset that they're not going to deliver what a market rate of return would be. Now, it doesn't mean that in the other two-thirds, they will generate those market returns. Uh, it just means that uh, there's an expectation that they might, if I can put it that way. Yes, and maybe absolutely. it's more like 60-40 yeah. than two-to-one. Right. That's quite interesting. Uh, to get a sense like that because I suppose in a way if you know and I know there are some funds in America like this that are you know they're kind of like venture capital funds they're looking for those kind of returns and the, looking for impact too but in a way it's uh, it's a different kind of animal than than one where you're looking at these kind of lower returns these kind of hybrids which are interesting and not and having difficulties the I US guess, funds moment. tend to be more high return funds with impact as well than more uh than than structured as funds that are set up right from the outset to be lower return funds uh, and many of the funds that are based in the us are also generating impact by investing in developing countries in particular africa latin america and the asian subcontinent and those deals typically offer very decent returns because you're 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 uh, playing the economic growth of those countries at the same time as you're uh, delivering impact whereas in the UK and to an extent in Europe as well we have seen deals where right from the outset the rates of return will be lower than market now that doesn't mean that high impact always means lower return so we say it clearly so. There's no seesaw in impact investment. And that means that if returns are high, uh, impact is low, or if returns are low, impact is high. No, it, it doesn't operate that way. In fact, we think there's a positive correlation between 
uh, return and impact in the sense that the more successful a company is, it's likely that the more impact they also generate. Uh, an example there would be a company like Just Giving, uh, a company that I happened to be chairman of uh, back in its early days, uh, 2003 to sort of 2006. You know, that's a company that became immensely successful, uh, is delivering good value to shareholders, but at the same time has revolutionized the way charitable giving takes place. And through its website, at least $3.5 billion has passed on its way to charitable organizations. And we think that that's really the model of the future. Businesses that are really successful, but also built into their model as a way of generating substantial impact as they go. You mentioned the role that the government and maybe foundations can play in some of these lower return scenarios. Generally, there seems to be more hybrid sources of finance becoming available or maybe people from different financing organizations working together and different sources, as you say, this blended finance. You talk a little bit about how that's developing, particularly in the UK, where I presume there's a little bit less or less foundation work going on. It is true. The foundations have been a much bigger factor in, say, the United States uh, than in the United Kingdom. First of all, they're larger. Um, uh, people uh, donate a lot more to charities. So these foundations are much more endowed. And there's also, it seems, a willingness to use their capital to lever in other capital. And that seems to be an attitude that works very well in the American markets, as I understand them. On the other hand, here in the UK, uh, what we sometimes pick up for, from foundations is a bit of resent, uh, the sense that why should we let our capital be used to help a private sector investor make their returns. They should take a, a hit too. And uh, that just creates a bit of a standoff. The private sector investor doesn't want to take the hit and uh, the impact investor isn't providing the subsidies. So as a result, uh, transactions don't happen. I tend to think it's a bit like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, I think it would be a great way for foundations in the UK to lever their capital. Uh, foundations in the US are it's a much, much more active in impact investment. Uh, uh, in the UK, there has been, despite the large size of foundation endowments, estimated at 80 or 90 billion, there has hardly been any material investment by foundations into this space. I would say it's probably less than 100 million in total. So really a paltry sum invested by foundations. And, and even the financial institutions have been slow off the mark here uh, we've seen very little activity from the leading UK financial institutions uh, in this area. Yes, that's interesting. That's interesting. You mentioned this breakdown or this you know, different categories, institutional investors and, and high net worth individuals. How important are the high net worth individuals? How active are they, relatively speaking? They are very active. We don't have data available, but they are extremely active, very engaged, leading the way in a lot of regards. Uh, obviously, high net worth individuals, unlike institutions, can invest immediately. They don't have any committee they have to satisfy. Uh, these rich people can do whatever they want to do. And what's also significant about them is that when they get engaged, it isn't just their money that comes in, but they bring also their expertise, their contact network, their experience. So it has been a very important source of capital in the UK. 
But it's worth saying that when you look at the amount of impact investment that has taken place in the UK, it, it has to be said that so far, most of it is just uh, asset-backed loans to charities. So you know, when, you, when you strip it down, uh, the bulk of impact investment today in the UK market has still been very conservative loan capital secured by property, which they could just as easily get from a bank. So even though the high-risk element is growing, it's growing from a very low base. I know there's a lot of terminology and I would say jargon around this area, which mm -hmm. is evolving, yeah. isn't it? It's there's a lot of change go going on. I'm wondering because I was struggling to find a way of you know defining these, we say, lower market return type <laughs> social investments. Is there some term that loosely correlates with that, or is some other useful way of talking about that? I tend to find the easiest way to describe things is to try to avoid the jargon. So I think. We all kind of understand what a market rate return is. Uh, there's you now different yes. assets have different uh, re uh, imputed returns in them, but but I, I think we all kind of yes. have a sense of okay in the in the government bond market it's X, in the private equity market it's Y, and in the listed equity market it's Z. And what I like to do is just say this will give you a slightly lower, a hundred basis point lower, a two hundred basis point lower. Return. So I try to use that market return, whatever it is in the relevant asset class, as kind of a benchmark. Um, and typically, people go down to zero. So uh, there is, as I said right at the outset, some capital willing to lose a little bit of its money a year. But for the most part, what we're all focused on is capital that is looking for at least money back to capital that is looking for a market return. And the easiest way to talk about it is not to create a class and say, this is low return capital, but rather, you know, say where on the spectrum between zero and market, that project or that fund is likely to wind up. There's so much talk about impact yeah. investment. And as you say, when you actually strip it back, sometimes, you know, what's the asset backed part what's the pure kind of venture capital part what's the market market plus you know part what are you left with and just finding an easy way to identify that because just talking about the growth and impact investment in one sense is isn't so absolutely meaningful i completely agree with you and i think that's an excellent point big society capital just did a report uh, which they published on their website which talks about the size of the impact investment market in the uk they believe that the market is about 1.5 billion pounds. But I mean, just to show you how um, different people see the market, our, and this is our meaning clearly so, our estimate of the market is 15 billion pounds. So we think the market is 10 times larger than big society capital defines it to be. Now, why is that? Well, for example, if a social bank, like a unity trust bank, makes a loan to a charity, uh, that would be considered an impact investment. But if Barclays Bank makes the same loan, uh, many observers would say that's not impact investment. That's just a normal loan. Well, we can't make we don't make that distinction. We think uh, that's why we come up with a much larger number. But again, there's no agreed set of data. 
And every attempt to get people to agree uh, leads to uh, disputes. So we've not bothered with that. We've just set out as a mission to generate as much of this as possible and to try to find as many organizations the capital they need as we can. Right, interesting. Pragmatic. Pragmatic we think that the intellectual <laughs> debate is just a bit of a waste of time, and we'd rather use our energy birds, yeah. to raise as much capital as possible and create as much impact as possible. Yes, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the process and what kind of organization ideally would you like to be talking to or would come to you? Or I suppose the other side of that is maybe what kind of organizations shouldn't be looking for impact investment? Yeah, those are several big questions. So uh, to answer the last question first, you shouldn't be looking for impact investment if you're just trying to make up a temporary deficit in your uh, in your books and you're structured like a charity. I mean, which isn't to say you might, I mean, which isn't to say you're not a worthy organization, but impact investment requires an investor and an investor at least wants to get his or her money back. So if you're an organization yes. that really doesn't have a viable project and not a project that will deliver returns, which at least will enable the uh, project to repay investors' capital, then what you basically have is a, a revenue shortfall and impact investment is certainly not appropriate for you. What we find in terms of the types of organizations that, that, that come to us is that they're very varied. Uh, we get between 100 and 200 inquiries every month. And from that, we probably try to work with three or four businesses a month. So you can see that we uh, we narrow the funnel uh, quite considerably. And our main criteria, and this is not going to be very helpful, but it's really true, our main criteria is, do we think they can raise money? We want to try to help people who, with our assistance, are going to be able to raise money. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are the highest return organizations, although, obviously, a high return organization is more likely to find capital available than an organization that looks unlikely to deliver a high return. I mean, all other things held equal. However, we have quite a few investors who are looking to make high-impact investments, and they're less minded about the returns. So, again, what we're trying to do is help the people who are most likely to find money. That's good for our business, but it's also good in the sense that that will enable us to raise the most capital possible and we think in the process um, also create the most social, ethical, and environmental impact. Right, right. That's interesting. We, we also say, just to be a bit controversial, that we're here to help the least needy. And I know that that sounds like a horrible thing to say, but the way we mean it is that we want to help those people who, with a bit of help, can actually raise money. Uh, on the other extreme are those organizations who, with all the help in the world, could never raise money. It doesn't mean they're not worthy organizations. It just means we can't help them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how much of is this about the actual team, the caliber, their drive, their ability, that they seem like people who can build the kind of organization that will generate these returns? I would say that is the most important factor. So I know people put a lot of store in um, the idea, the concept, the product, etc. 
But my experience is overwhelmingly that it is the entrepreneurial team. And that team could be the executive team. It could include the board of directors as well. But ultimately, it is a team that will drive success because business plans change, companies pivot. They start out in one direction. They eventually head off in another. Very few things are Facebook, where a guy just comes up with an idea, starts coding, and he's an overnight success. That is a very extraordinary story uh, for many reasons. Most of the time, it's about trial and error. And the key is how a management team and the board pull together to shift and change and uh, tweak their businesses so that they can ultimately become successful. So we think that the more experienced investors we talk to are ultimately doing the most amount of due diligence on the team itself. Right, right. That's interesting. What advice would you give somebody today who's at some stage in this process and you know aspires to raise money maybe in two years' time or three years' time in terms of what to do to present the best case, as it were? And you mentioned some of the elements there that you know presumably if you've got a group of advisors, if you've got a, you know a board, it can't cover up if you just generally haven't got the skills and so forth. But what kinds of things can they do and should they think about to to put their best foot? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that if, as I say, the team is most important, then what you need to do is build a really great team. That doesn't mean that everybody has to quit their job and immediately sign up before they've raised any money, because sometimes that's not practical. But it means you have to get commitments from a well-rounded group of people who, when an external investor looks at them, can say, yep, I think they can deliver. It also could mean having an advisory board, so you don't have to pay anybody, but you have a group of people who are saying implicitly, um, if this thing gets off the ground, we will back it. It's a way of showing traction. It's a way of showing that you can you know, convince people to join you on your mission. Um, I think that's by far and away the most important. Then, obviously, if you can start to make some headway in the business, find a few reference customers, develop a product, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, win some contracts. If you can do some of those things and show actual traction, well, then you're, you know, you're in a very good position. That's good advice, uh, very helpful advice. And what about some of the areas that you think impact entrepreneurs could do better in the UK? A few areas where they, I mean, you mentioned building up a team. Presumably, some people don't make it to the start of the starting block because of that. Are there a few other well, I think things? You've phrased the question in a way that targets the impact entrepreneurs. So there's a whole bunch of things that impact entrepreneurs can do which I think also apply to mainstream entrepreneurs. So we could go through those. I've talked about some of those. Let's not belabor those points. There's one area where I think impact entrepreneurs have some difficulty, and it's the flip side of, of an advantage they have. So they tend to have a sort of passion that is disproportionate to the task. I mean, because they're so committed to what they're doing, they are really zealous. Now, sometimes they seem a bit unrealistic, but I think there's a, a certain 
belief that what they're doing is so important uh, that it's really quite inspiring, and I think investors react very well to that. Having said that, it sometimes comes with a sense of expectation that society or investors owe them something. So that because they're doing something that's so incredibly important, investors or anybody should put aside their concerns and just back them because what they're doing is so self-evidently wonderful. And that sort of sense of entitlement is, I think, unique to high-impact entrepreneurs. Um, and I would urge them to jettison that and to remember that if they want investment capital, that what's important is to listen to investors, hear what they're interested in, and not lecture them on why they should do something just because what they think they're doing is so important. It's not to say it isn't important, but there, there's just a sense of entitlement that they need to lose because ultimately investors have um, fiduciary responsibilities and a whole host of desires. And I think in the same way that investors care, uh, sorry, entrepreneurs care about the things they care about, they need to recognize that investors may have other imperatives than theirs. And that sense of balance right, is something right. that you find right. to be relatively unique in the impact sector. Very interesting, yeah. What about impact? And maybe this is the last question just to get your sense on. Clearly, measuring financial returns, or at least expected financial returns, is can be pretty clear in terms of the figures, you know, 5%, 7%, 9%, you boil it down to something like that. You can talk about that. Impact, it seems, is a much more tricky proposition to, to measure and to talk about in that way. How do you think about measurement of huh. impact? Well, that's an enormous question, and we could have a whole call on that alone. I guess, first and foremost... We think that one of the things that makes the impact investment sector work is that people are ultimately generating some significant social, ethical, and environmental impact. So some ability to articulate it and measure it is important. What tends to happen, though, is that people get bogged down in form. So uh, many impact investors expect very complicated, expensive, costly, time-consuming impact reports to get done, which are often rubbish and don't really justify the amount of time and energy and effort and money spent on them. So what we tend to do is work with the entrepreneurs to figure out the one or two things they do that are really significant and get very simple cost-effective ways to measure those and just get on with their jobs. So our focus with many of the entrepreneurs we work with is identify the core impacts you generate, measure them efficiently, report on them transparently, and don't waste a lot of time on form. So substance over form. Right. Boiled it down to the pith. You've got the exactly. pith there, Rod. Thank you. And looking forward for Clearly So, what's your vision for the foreseeable future? What time frame are you looking at and what do you want to achieve? Well, we want to be the most successful impact investment bank in Europe. I guess, I guess to some extent we're already there, but we'd be a lot we'd like to be a lot larger. We'd like to be pan-European. Uh, we'd like to generate a lot more capital for uh, impact organizations. I mean we've already raised more money than anybody else in Europe, about 110 million pounds for clients. But 
I think, you know, we are a very narrowly UK focused organization. We would like to be pan-European uh, and offer pretty much the same services, the same capital raising services to a broader base of organizations across Europe, obviously based in the UK. We would be based in the UK. Actually, if we are able to, I guess we, we, we want to do three things at the same time. Uh, we want to be a very successful investment bank. That's pretty hard in and of itself. Lots of people failed to do that. Some very big investment banks have failed, as you know. So that's the first imperative. The second imperative is to do so in the impact sector, which is a new sector, a rapidly growing sector, but a very new sector, and one that has its own unique challenges. And the third thing, I guess, is to do that in a way which doesn't have us becoming like every investment bank in the mainstream. Uh, the team of people here at Clearly So have come because they want to not have the sorts of lives that they may have had in investment banks. So what we want to do is become a successful investment bank in the impact investment so sector, but not develop all the bad habits that many investment banks uh, have developed over the last 20 years or so. So those are our challenges. And if we pull all that off, we'll all be very proud. Thank you very much for your time today. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.